0: This story was broken by the staff journalist, Kirsty Johnston, who actually managed to put together two blockbuster stories within a six hour window on Monday. So the first of those, uh, was about migrant fruit pickers from the Pacific who'd been forced to live in cold, miserable conditions while being told they had to work while sick during the pandemic. And that would have been enough for a day's work for most people, but then the story on Uffendale came out hours later, and it's shaped the news agenda since, obviously. So I mean, I'd like to award Johnston the coveted midweek Media Watch Award for exemplary uh, journalism and offer her our congratulations. But I would know that it's kind of unfortunate though, that other media entities haven't quite gone to the same lengths, because many of the organisations that initially followed this story, including One News, RNZ's Morning Report, News Hub, they all failed to credit stuff, and and they instead initially attributed this story to a report, you know, a vague, you know, (laughs) a report. Uh, That's unfortunate, I think, especially given stuff is still the only outlet that's interviewed Uffendale's victim at King's College, and So much of the other reporting is second-hand. It's relying on that, and it wouldn't be possible without that original work. So really, best practice to credit it. And that's something of a a curse, I think, in New Zealand journalism. I don't know if you saw... With David Farrier's reporting on Arise Church, there was a lot of that where he would break a story and then media responded to David's reporting, would report uh, new developments as if they were new and they were almost happening in a vacuum. And I found that quite odd, and so did David Farrier, obviously. Anna Fifield, the Dominion Post editor, she spent much of her career working overseas. She tweeted that it's been a surprise seeing how little our news organizations credit each other here. And I actually tried to look into this issue of attribution in the past because it it just keeps cropping up. People keep complaining about it. Everyone's kind of angry at each other. But I I did ask a few media organisations for their policy. The Herald said it has policies actually mandating it. And to its credit, though, it was one of the few that did, you know, credit Johnson's work on this one. Stuff has a policy mandating attribution as well. But it does seem like these policies aren't always followed, or at least they're not followed consistently. And I just find that kind of sad because – It's not just sad, it's also self-defeating because what goes around comes around, right? If everyone credits, everyone wins, we all get each other's clicks. The Cold War, I think, on attribution must end. I'm I'm appealing for an armistice, a peace treaty right now.
1: In practical terms, though, Hayden, uh, a story as big as this and as uh, uh, often repeated uh, as this, uh, you couldn't do it for every report.
0: No, I don't think and especially once you've got your own sources and you're stacking up your own stuff and look that was the case with the rise as well i didn't think that every report should have been you know credited to David but when there was actual actions from a rise that actually arose out of david's reporting sometimes he still wasn't mentioned which was weird and it actually gave readers a less complete picture in this case when you're really relying on another organization's work you haven't done your own work you should credit them and once you've done your own, you can, get, you can get on with just writing the story as normal.
1: Sounds fair. Uh, there was also an insinuation that this story uh, might actually be part of some coordinated political hit job.
0: Yeah, and I just wanted to touch on this briefly. There was Patrick Smelly Business Desk's founder. He wrote a sort of uh, – I don't know whether I'm misinterpreting. It was, it was a bit vague, but he said, you know, this could be considered a leak designed to deflect from the government. Uh, Tim Beveridge on News Talk ZB, he was more explicit. He just said, I think most of us would accept this is a calculated and well-timed political hit job. And he was on a panel at that time with Jack Tame, who, to his credit, rounded on him relatively strongly over that. And I, I just want to – so, you know, Kirsty Johnson's given a pretty clear timeline uh, of how this story came about, and it's just not true that it's some sort of coordinated political hit job. She's not a gallery reporter. I kind of have some detail on how it came about. It was a long process. It's not like one of those things that was time for poll day or whatever. And so I, I just think with this kind of thing, I'd caution that it's pretty insulting to insinuate that a fellow journalist – or, or indeed, like alleged victims are participating in a planned political attack. And that's particularly if you don't have any facts to back that up.
1: Well, attribution and story origin aside, there's been some debate when the story first broke, uh, perhaps not today, about whether it should have been a story at all, given how long ago it took place.
0: This was the big complaint from commentators over this saga, and I'll just highlight a few bits of audio. But when, when the story first broke, Heather Plessy allen she carried out a pretty good interview with Sam Uffendell and it covered some important points, but I thought it was interesting how it ended. So this is how that went. I'll talk to my team and, and obviously the leadership and, and uh, reflect from there. All right. Sam, thank you for, for turning up to have a chat to us about it. I appreciate it, mate. Uh, yeah, little thing. I appreciate it, mate you know, obviously a bit of collegiality there, and uh, DiPlessio, and she, w- she went on to write a column headline, 16-year-olds make bad decisions, and she emphasised the need for compassion over all offences. and she actually said that explicitly tonight, that he shouldn't be punished for what he did when he was 16. She's not the only one that has sort of said something like that, that it's so long ago, why are we covering it now? And stuff, the former chaplain of King's College, he sort of took a bit of a a similar stance, he dismissed complaints about widespread bullying at the school with that, you know, that classic line, boys will be boys, uh, commentators, that have stuck to that. RNZ aired further allegations from one of Uffendale's former flatmates who said he beat on her door while yelling obscenities, until she fled out the window and then she moved out of the flat with her dad's help the next day. Even today, the platform's Martin Devlin. He was complaining. Why is the media dominated by people talking about what he called flatting arguments from 20 years ago rather than the big issues? Uh, we had News Talk ZB's husband and wife, Juro Kate Hawksby, Mike Hosking, deriding the focus on the incident. Hawksby said, you know, regarding the shouting and the banging on the door, that part's not that shocking. She thought it was just something that happens in student flats, I guess. Look, I'm not sure what types of flats. These guys have been... Living in, But they seem like they're pretty rough, pretty wild places. You know, Hosking, he was actually, uh, until recently, calling for tougher sentences on young offenders. But today he turned the blowtorch back on the victims, accusing them of seeking revenge for what he saw as comparatively non-newsworthy incidents. So here's a clip of that.
1: And where does it stop if banging on the door and yelling is cause for a QC? How many other stories of doors out there are there? If behaviour is the critical component here, look at Urfendel all you want. But what about the behaviour and the motive of those that look to destroy a person all these years later? So basically there's some media angst about whether we should be bringing up the stuff that happened all those years ago.
0: Yeah, exactly. And I just think that maybe trying to turn the blowtorch back on victims in the first place is a very pretty iffy conduct. But then, yes, these people are bringing up these stories all these years later, but it's not like it was precipitated by nothing or out of the blue. It was it happened because Uffindel is now the MP for Tauranga. And, and you go, oh, that's political. But what's wrong with that? He's in a public office now representing a city, and that does come with additional scrutiny. That's kind of part of the job. Also in that original story from Johnson, it was clear that the victim at its centre was pretty happy to let things lie after Uffendale reached out to him and apologised. You might remember he did that sort of nine months before he launched his political career. And this victim, it's said in the story, he only decided to talk after the MP launched his political career pretty soon after that apology. And that led the victim to feel like that wasn't genuine. So not really a conspiracy here. You'd think that the RNZ uh, victim as well probably saw the news and thought, oh, I'll talk about that. And, you know, you had Tim Beveridge saying, why are these people being anonymous? Well, maybe they want to be anonymous because they're going to get criticised in the nation's most popular morning news show for being part of a political hit job, and they're going to be raked over the coals if they're not anonymous. It's not really, to me, that much of a conspiracy. But anyway... This sort of angst, it's not just come from commentators who might be a bit less than neutral when it comes to their politics. We had on Morning Report on Tuesday, Guyan Espiner, he carried out a really good interview, and he, he did at the same time seem pretty rueful about it, or at least subdued about taking up to Delta Task. And later on, he explained that tone. He confessed to some conflicted feelings about the story in an interview with the journalism teacher, Jim Tully. And here's how that conversation went. Did you pause at all when you saw it break? I mean, I, I did, to be honest. I was like, mm, well, he was 16, and then I looked into it a bit more and thought, well, okay, you know, and, we, and, and looked at these kinds of issues we, we talked about, about how he handled it and stuff. Well, did, you I, give a, you, did it give you a pause at all? I think a, a warning light flashed, um, but then, like you, the more you look into it, the more you can see, well, in the end, this
1: is something that the public... Well, what do you think about this? Where do we draw the line on dredging up the past?
0: And I think I, I side with Guy and and Jim Tully on this one. You know, it, it, I appreciate the idea that the things that you do when you're 16, you shouldn't define, they shouldn't define you for life. You know, if Uffendale had been upfront, contrite about what happened and the media was still hounding him saying, how could you do this? I agree, that's kind of going too far. As people have said, we do all make mistakes when we're young. This is a pretty major one, but, that, you know, there has to be some room for redemption. But that's not really how this played out. You know, he wasn't up front in control. As as Claire Trevette wrote in The Herald, he was given chances to be open about this incident during his Tauranga campaign. And she noted that he was asked during a and a what was your biggest mistake in life? And he said, not coming home to New Zealand sooner. Look, I uh, I, I mean, I'm no ethicist, but I would say, you know, sneaking into a 13-year-old's you know, room while they're sleeping and beating them ranks a bit higher than that. I mean, Uffendale has followed the same format, even in recent days. So it's not just back then. You know, when Guy and Espiner, uh, on in his interview with Uffendale on Tuesday morning, asked him uh, whether more allegations would be reported. This was Uffendale's response. Yeah,
1: uh, is there anything else that's going to come out?
0: No, I don't think so. By the afternoon, he was saying the opposite. He was holding a press conference to tell people he expected more allegations to surface. And, of course, the following day, they did. And that speaks to a pattern, I think, of minimisation or at least holding back what you think you can hold back. And that's going to be newsworthy uh, no matter which party you're from or how long ago the incident happened. There's really nothing that journalists hate more than when they feel like a politician might be lying to them or holding back some of the truth.
1: Uh, There's also the fact that he has been very vocal about being tough on crime despite having this stuff in his own history.
0: Yeah, exactly. And I don't know whether this would have blown up quite so much if there wasn't that sense that there's hypocrisy involved here. You know, Stuff's original story on the King's incident noted that in Uffendale's maiden speech, he hit out at what he called a growing culture of lawlessness, lack of accountability, a sense of impunity, and he's since admitted to breaking the law. If not with impunity, then with relatively light repercussions. He went to another expensive private school, and he has failed to accept accountability for those actions until caught out. How could you say those things? You know, that's the point that pundits have made. Made so literally in a piece for pundit Tim Watkin notes victims of bullying may not see this as such a minor matter. Look, I think that's important to note. There, you know, bullying casts a long shadow. I can say that from personal experience. But Watkin goes on to say the incident undermines National's attack on the government as soft on crime, pointing to Paul Goldsmith just weeks ago saying that. Uh, Labor needs to ensure youth offenders face consequences for their actions and are held accountable for their actions. Well, uh- they might say, you can start with the guy sitting just across from you in your caucus. I mean, in a similar piece for Newsroom, Aaron Smale said the problem wasn't that Afendal screwed up, but that he was now arguing that poorer, disproportionately Māori or Pacifica children shouldn't get the same second chance as he got. And uh, just finally, in my roundup of all the people making the same point, the Herald's Thomas Coglin He took aim at the party's double standards as well. And in a column today, he penned the line – If delinquent youth are getting a free ride under Labour, they appear to be getting a free ride into national. And I I mean, I just uh, repeat that line mainly because it's very funny. Uh, In essence, the argument's this. You can't say tough justice for me, mercy and compassion for me. You can't say throw the book at teenage ram raiders while writing columns saying 16-year-olds make mistakes and calling for understanding. You're judged by the standard you set.
1: Right. Well, should we go on to something else? He wanted to talk about student yeah. party culture in Dunedin. Uh, does this all tie in? Uh, yeah.
0: I wanted to say with the last one, there's been a bit of reporting that kind of called out the normalisation of bullying and, uh, in some cases, homophobia in these private schools. And uh, I liked the reporting. It was Alice Stewart and RNZ, Andrew Dean and stuff. And they're sort of looking at the normal stuff that happens and going, hey, well, not normal, but, you know, the stuff that we just accept happens as a matter of course and saying, oh, is that actually appropriate? Is this doing lasting damage to people? And I thought, yeah, the student party stuff is a little bit similar. Uh, and also there's an interesting parallel to the Sam Effendale, uh story here because some of the stuff he's accused of doing happened at it as, as he was a rowdy student at Otago University. So uh, TVNZ's youth network, re put out, re, colon, news uh, is actually their full name, put out a a really interesting mini-documentary this week about flat parties in Dunedin. And its central figure is the former student Megan Prentice, whose best friend Sophia Cristani was crushed to death in an overcrowded flat party back in 2019. So Prentice plays two roles in this. She's the doco's most important interview subject, and she's also an interviewer herself. So here she is outside the house where her friend died. We like Spent the whole day, like, getting ready together. I got my ears pierced. <laughs> we, like, made dinner together. Yeah. It's weird to, like, think back to that day and,
1: like, know what was going to happen, I guess.
0: Gee, that's sad. Really sad. Really moving. Uh, for seeing her doing that, and she's also... She's very articulate and very um, strong as a host and an interviewer as well, so she's upset there. She kind of goes through <laughs> the, the full range of roles in this. Uh, an incredibly tough subject. Uh, the doco's key thesis is that flat parties are pretty out of hand in Otipoti, so <laughs> no huge <laughs> surprise there, not exactly breaking news, but it argues that the situation has been made worse by efforts to shunt out a lot of the bars like the Captain Cook, or, you know, where students used to congregate and you know those bars had a bit of a reputation, but apprentices' eyes, allowing them to close, has just forced all of the student revelry into flats where it's less regulated and often far more unsafe. And so yeah, just a normal thing that's happening, uh nothing that people are really, you know, condemning all the time, but really trying to come up with taking the status quo, identifying an issue with it and proposing a solution. And Uh, I thought that was good, and that's something that a lot of people have done this week, including in the Sam Uffendell story when it's talking about the culture of boarding schools. But also, I want to note that strangely, this is not the only excellent mini-doco I've seen on student culture in uh, Otago University just in the last few weeks. Oh, what else have you seen? Uh, The second one is by a young collective called the Department of Information. And just to put it euphemistically, (laughs) it's a a bit more... Great name, a bit more raw than the one produced by Re. It, it, it's basically kind of gonzo journalism from the scene of a raging party on Castle Street in Dunedin. So, if, you, if you're tough enough to endure some bad language and the sound of a whole bunch of drunk students repeatedly putting the interviewer's microphone in their mouths for some reason, uh, uh, then I'd recommend watching it as a <laughs> companion piece to the one on Re. It also talks about people getting hurt at parties but it kind of gives a more, I'll say, first-hand picture of why those injuries take place. And this is about the only clip I could find that's broadcastable on Her Majesty's national radio series. <laughs> a bit of DMV, a bit of fun, yeah, I don't know what else. Basically, if you dance to the bass enough, you forget about your childhood trauma for a little bit, and that's just a beautiful thing. I kind of go somewhere like,
1: <laughs> Yes, 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 yes.
0: Glad I wasn't there. Uh, <laughs> We might have been a little bit out of place if we were there, Karen. That should give you a taste of just how this uh, doco goes. It's really fly on the wall. It doesn't offer any commentary around the sides. It's not like the re one where it has a real point, but it it does give you a – it's really compelling, actually. It gives you a picture of uh, what the issues could be without actually saying what the issues could be, and it has a really poignant coda, which I won't spoil for you, but the ending is really great.
1: So what you're saying is that we're coming up with some great youth content
0: here. I love both these docos, but it it leads me to my last topic, which is a scoop from the spinoff Duncan Greve. And recently some job ads started going up for Vice NZ, and that struck a lot of people as weird because Vice NZ closed its New Zealand office in 2019 and made all its staff redundant. So Greve started digging into this, and apparently all these new roles are entirely funded by the Ministry of Social Development as part of its series that it's running, apparently, on teaching teens how to deal with breakups.
1: Seems like a strange choice for a a contract.
0: I think it's particularly galling, given what I've mentioned about redoing the strong work targeted at young people. If you're going to target younger audiences, surely a place like Re, which is a public media organization that actually employs a bunch of New Zealand staff, surely that would be a better option. Even, you know, maybe Greve's got a bit of self-interest here. I mean, even the spin-off, which is pitched more uh, millennials but draws in some younger people, could have been a more defensible choice. Uh, giving nearly $2 million in cash to an offshore company, which literally shuttered its New Zealand office to save cash, is pretty – indefensible, especially I think when you have some really good local options that are investing in people in this country, and that's basically what some of the former Vice NZ staff said to Duncan Greve as well.
1: Hayden, what about RNZ? We have Tahi, the digital platform for youth, but we're not broadcasting on a radio frequency or a spectrum.
0: But of course that plan, as you know, was sent spinning sideways by backlash over the fact that our youth station might have knocked Concert FM off the airwaves, fair enough, but uh, it meant that this whole youth thing was kind of sidelined a bit. And in any case, there's an argument. The government's invested so much money in media to so much controversy over the last few years. Maybe if we just invested that money in RNZ to set up a more comprehensive public media outfit with you know, content catering to youth, it it might have been a little bit more of a solid investment and we might have had something like Tahi – Uh, off the ground that would have been a better destination for some of this Ministry of Social Development uh, cash instead of sending it offshore to a, a company that's already left our borders to set up its New Zealand office again.